Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 20. Um, the text is also printed in your bulletin. If you have the insert, uh, you will find the text there along with the points that we're going to be working through. While you're doing this, I want to just take a moment to thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, it is a privilege and an honor. Um, it is something that um, I take great joy in. Uh, my wife, newborn son, and I did move here at the end of June um, after spending my entire life in the state of Mississippi. Uh, so this is the first place I've lived outside of that state. Um, because of that, my voice sounds a little different to some of you, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and while we're on the subject, in fact, I want to help you out. Um, when you have conversations with me and there's some, some things that you might hear during the sermon that's going to be confusing to you. So I want to clear those up on the front end uh, so that you're ready when they happen. And the first of which I need to introduce you to a word. It's the second person plural form of the word you. Uh, it's a contraction that most effectively denotes you all and it's known in the south as y'all. Um, this is a very good word unless you're in English class then do not use it. Um, the second of words that you should not use in English class, but you may hear in interacting with me, is a wonderful word known as reckon. Reckon is a great southern word that can be used to mean I guess so, I think so, or I believe I'm going to do this or that. Um, I also was told after the first service to make sure and mention fixin' to, um, which is another um, shortened, abbreviated form of a phrase I am about to. Um, and then my personal favorite um, is a, a fun word known as yonder. Yonder is an indiscriminate amount of distance. It means anywhere other than right in front of you. Um, and so it has many uses and many purposes. The communion table is over yonder as the sound booth is over yonder and the cars out there are over yonder. And so now that we've kind of gotten the language barrier out of the way, uh, I feel that you'll be well prepared for this morning. But on a more serious note, I, I want you to recognize that it's, it's not by my strength that I stand. It's not by my words that I preach and teach, but the words of the Lord. And it's only by His help that I can come before you today. And it's only by His help that you can hear, believe, and understand what He has for us today. And so I would invite you to, to go with me uh, to the Lord in prayer and asking Him for His help for what He has for us this morning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what a privilege it is to, in a language that we know and words that we can read, to hear what you have written for us. We thank you for this completed collection of books, this Bible that we have, and the truths that, um, that it shares. Help us this morning hear your word. Help us to come before it with open hearts and open ears and open minds so that we can be changed and transformed, refreshed and renewed by it. Give me the strength to do this. Um, help me to say what you would have me to say, not what I would find convenient or helpful on my own. But truly speak through me, your broken vessel, your, your messenger today. Help this congregation hear that and be glorified um, by that. And we ask this in your name. Amen. If you would look with me to Acts chapter 20, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12 this morning. And then as far as our uh, particular passage goes, we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 12. But this is the word of the Lord for us this morning um, in Acts chapter 20. 
After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. After encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristocrus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the day of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, and intending to depart the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. A young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he place these truths on all of our hearts. I was preaching at a church, um, I guess it's about three or four years ago now. Um, I was doing a sermon series in Mississippi on um, Timothy and on keeping the faith. And after the service, I went down to the front and I was prepared for the ritualistic shaking of hands and hearing good sermon pastor that you grow quite accustomed to through the years. However, on this particular Sunday, probably the most interesting thing that has ever happened to me in my ministry occurred. I was looking at the people as they came um, up the aisle and I, I made eye contact with this woman who was in tears. And I'm not talking one single tear, but, but weeping as she made her way um, toward me and the elders. And this kind of terrified me, if I was perfectly honest. I didn't think my sermon was all that great. Um, and I knew this woman to have known the Lord for over 50 years. She was around 70 years old. Um, and so I hesitated as I, as I waited for her to get there. And before I could even say anything to her, she embraced me. And I was, you know, it's one of those moments that all you can say is, what's going on? And she said, Aaron, that's the best sermon you have ever preached in your entire life. It's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Another warning sign went off in my head, and I was like, okay, what do you mean? You've heard a lot of sermons. You've lived a long time. Um, and she said, and I quote, Usually your preaching puts me to sleep within the first ten minutes. But today, you kept me awake for the whole time, and I just wanted to thank you for that. I was speechless, as you can imagine. And we went on our ways, and it wasn't till later, as I could reflect on um, this event and this occurrence, that, that this lady drew me to one of my favorite passages, the one before you today. And so what I want to do with you today is I want to explore um, this text in Acts chapter 20. And I want to tell you four ways that this text draws us to a love 
of God and a love of God's word. And I'm going to show you um, when we get to the end why this text is so important, why it was so important to this woman and why it's so important to us as well. So this morning, if you'll look at your outline, we're going to actually see four areas from this passage that call us to a deeper understanding of God and his word. We're going to look firstly at the background of this text. We're going to see how the information which we're given plays an important part in serving and loving and believing God. We're also going to see the importance of Eutychus in our text, kind of the anticlimactic hero. Thirdly, we're going to look at the importance of the gospel message being preached to all of us. And the effect it should have. Which is, the fourth and lastly, we're going to see how we should respond in light of these truths. With that in mind, let us begin by zooming in and focusing on the setting of our story. One of the things that we know about the study of God's word is the setting within which our story takes place matters. This is one of the first key truths I'm privileged with teaching my students at Heritage Christian Academy. We have a phrase, it's called context is king. The setting within which the story takes place affects the story itself. So we need to pay careful attention. Dr. Luke would not waste words. He would not put things before us that didn't have particular effect or importance. And so let's think about some of these things that we know that set up the stage for the rest of the story. The first truth that we know is as we're introduced to this body of believers is they're gathered on the first day of the week. Now do not miss this. This is actually the first account we have in the New Testament showing a church worshiping on Sunday as opposed to the traditional Saturday Sabbath. We know that the New Testament church made this change in light of Christ's resurrection. And so in light of what had taken place in Christ's life, we see believers transitioning from Saturday to Sunday. We don't think about this today because we have the weekend and we're used to Sunday worship. But in this time, that would have been outright shocking. Um, I'm reminded of this as my wife and I, we joined the Jewish Community Center here to work out because of their great child care. And um, it's been many, many times that we've tried to go in on Friday afternoon only to find the doors closed. For the Jewish people, um, sundown on Friday marks the beginning of the next day and marks the beginning of the Sabbath. And the doors stay closed until Sunday morning. This is something that we've been able to, to see on a weekly basis. But for most of us, this is something that we all but have forgotten. This tells us that these people are at least familiar with the teachings of Christ. How can they practice something if they don't know why it's being practiced? We also know a little bit about the particular structure in which this long sermon takes place. We're told that the people are in the upper room of a third-story building. They're likely not a wealthy church. This is very early on in their ministry. And, and so they had to do more of a house worship or um, family worship style. Scholars also don't believe that this house was owned by a single individual. Instead, they believe it was owned either by a community and more of an apartment style or a family unit, a, a unit of families owning different rooms. This will come back in a moment as we think about how fiscally responsible this church is. 
We also see in our text that they were gathered together to break bread on the first day of the week. And those words, when you see them in the New Testament, you almost always need to have in your mind the breaking of bread is in communion. This tells us that the people were most likely believers. For once again, how can they practice communion, something that was commanded of Christians on the night before Jesus um, suffered his fate, if they've never heard it before, if it's never been preached to them, if it's never been taught to them, how or why would they partake in such a practice? One last thing we need to mention about the story or the setting within which we find ourselves is the Apostle Paul himself. Paul had to have a heart for these people. At this point in, in Paul's spiritual journey, um, he's on his third um, of his missionary journeys. He was a very busy guy. He had his heart set on Jerusalem and then on to Rome. It's very interesting that he would spend as much time as he did. The text is very clear that he was here for a week teaching and preaching and instructing these believers. Even more than that, we see Paul preaching a very interesting sermon if you follow the passage of time and, and caught the emphasis that I attempted to add. Paul begins preaching around sundown. Now we know this for two reasons. One, um, Sunday was not a day off from work as we have it today. Um, they likely would have had to go on to work all day and then come to attend worship. But also we see the presence of lamps in the upper room. These weren't used for arbitrary reasons. It would have had to been used due to the lack of lighting. It would have had to have been done for practical reasons. You see, they're not like some of us today that when we get home, we turn every light in the house on because we like light. Um, they couldn't afford to do such a thing. It would have taken time and money and effort to trim the wicks to make sure you had plenty of oil to make sure the lamps were safely burning out of the reach of, of children and the like. And so they would not have wasted their resources. They didn't have a lot to begin with. We're told, though, after we realize that he starts at sundown, that he extends until midnight. We're already at six hours here. He's interrupted. Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window. Paul deals with that, goes back upstairs, and keeps doing what he was doing. And then it says he talks a long while still until daybreak. If you do the math, Paul is preaching here somewhere between a 10 to 12 hour sermon or lesson before these people. That's incredible. Now, don't worry. I've not been um, charged by doing a case study with you here and seeing how long we can go this morning. Um, that wouldn't work well for you and it definitely wouldn't work well for me um, or for our son who's in the nursery. Um, so rest assured that's not what's going on. But it does say something about the people and the preacher in our text today. We'll come back to that for a moment because before we go any further, we need to ask some questions um, that I'm sure you're all thinking. There's a man in our text, the man by the name of Eutychus. The man by the name that the scribes decide to title this chapter. Um, we do realize that um, titles and chapters and verse headings weren't in the original text, but were later added by scholars and scribes to help us uh, quickly locate passages and to give us clues as to what passages are about. 
And so here we have a passage about the raising of Eutychus from the dead, if your, if your Bible um, gives the same title headings that mine do. Let us think for a moment, why? Why name a text after this man? Well, there are really only two things that we know about Eutychus. One of which we know implicitly um, by the study of Greek and through his name, and then another we know explicitly through the text itself. The first thing we know about Eutychus in a little study of the Greek language is that his name most literally translated means lucky or fortunate. You see, in the, in the biblical times, particularly in the Old Testament, a name had value, a name had meaning. What you were named could say something about who you were or what you were going to do or um, how you were going to serve the Lord. Everything had a purpose. But why? Why name this poor child lucky or fortunate? Well, We'll get back to that in a moment as well, and we'll find out how truly fortunate it was that he does have the name that he does. But the second thing we know, and what we have explicitly stated in our text, is that Eutychus, a young man, fell asleep while listening to uh, six hours of a sermon. He fell out a third-story window. It was a lethal fall. He dies. Paul brings him back to life, Paul goes back upstairs, Paul preaches, and then later on we find out that the people are comforted by this fact. Once again, we ask, why? Why this story? Why this account? Why this event? What a strange situation to have in our inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Well, let's begin to answer that. Some scholars like to first debate about why he fell out the window in the first place. Some point to the height of the building and poor circulation. The lamps would have been given off a lot of smoke and therefore making it very hard to breathe in the room. This may be why he sits in the window in the first place. Eutychus may be far more intelligent than we give him credit. Can you imagine how stuffy it was in that room? Cool, dark, um, there's no air conditioning. There's poor circulation. There's lamps taking up what little oxygen there was to go around. There's a large crowd as these people are tightly um, squeezed in. And then on top of that, we have this unusually long sermon. I mean, let's empathize with the guy just a little bit. Some of us, if we're honest, 30 and 40 minutes max, and we're ready to nod off. And yet this guy listens at least six hours into this 12-hour sermon. He lasted far longer than most of us would have. Others, though, they take a more practical approach. Eutychus is lazy. Eutychus was sleepy. And so he got exactly what he deserved. But I think we need to be careful with this interpretation because... The, the simplicity of it. How ignorant would you have to be if you're tired or lazy to sit in a windowsill? If you're tired or lazy, you find a corner or a seat in the back. It's the equivalent of you coming to church tired and then sitting on the front row. You don't do that. You find a spot in the back where no one will see you, where you don't get caught. We don't think that Eutychus was that ignorant. But regardless of how or why he dies, the text is clear in saying that he does. He falls out of the window. He is pronounced dead. But don't you find it odd 
that the man who this text seems to be named after is barely mentioned. I mean, we get his name, um, what, twice in this text? And then he's never mentioned again. The text, which his name is, he's named after, he's titled. We need to be careful here about making an argument from what's not present. That's a, a danger we have in interpreting Scripture, making an argument from absence. But I do think that there's a very important truth that we come to when we think about why this is the way it is. And that is this. The whole point of Eutychus and his account and this event is that he's a minor character to, our own, to his own story. You heard that right. He is an important character solely due to how little the text talks about him. The text is clear to tell us that he's taken up dead. This seems to take place halfway through Paul's teaching. And Paul goes down and stretches his arms out, declares he's alive, then goes back upstairs and keeps doing what he was doing. Now wait a minute. Miracles play a big part in the Bible, don't they? They're used to speak of Jesus' divinity. They're used to prove apostolic authority. And they're used to even validate the teaching of the prophets. When the apostles usually perform a miracle, we see people either believing or disbelieving. But the emphasis is always on the reaction to the miracle itself. This occurs all throughout the book of Acts, the two places in particular. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we're told, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and of prayer. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The Lord added to their number day by day by day those who were saved. Also worth noting is Acts chapter 13 where Paul strikes a magician blind for opposing the gospel message. Here we're told immediately after Paul does this, there were people that were with him and this is what's said of them. They believed when he saw what occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He believed when he saw what, it was, what occurred for the teaching of the Lord. That's Acts 13, 12. In both of these instances, people are hearing the word and seeing miracles. In light of this, they're being converted and devoting themselves to the Lord's teaching. There always seems to be a connection between miracle being performed and message being preached. But if we come back to our text to make things even a little more interesting, if it's not already so, this is one of the last miracles we have recorded from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. You would almost expect some sort of climactic conclusion to this ministry filled with miracles and preaching and teaching. But we have the opposite, don't we? Paul and the people pay very little attention to Eutychus. In fact, they all break bread and continue on listening to Paul's preaching. Eutychus isn't even mentioned again till the very end of the text. And it's only then that we see him alive and the people happy about it. Has the Dr. Luke made a mistake? No. No, he hasn't. In fact, Eutychus serves to show us the importance of God's word. Yes, we do have a miracle performed. There was physical death that takes place. But Paul is more concerned with the spiritual matters that are happening upstairs. We cannot miss this. 
While it may be serious to die physically, while physical death does limit our abilities to think and reason and understand, far more significant than that is our spiritual outcome. The gospel message was top priority to Paul and to the apostles. It's not something that was placed as second importance to the miracles that were performed. In fact, Eutychus shows us that the gospel message is far more important than miracles themselves and even death. Why else would Paul spend so much time with these people preaching and teaching and engaging in fellowship? Why else would the people actually sit and listen through this? We need to take a moment now as we pause and and look at the third point to consider the reality of this gospel message. For whether we're here as Christians and believers or you come as a non-believer and hearing this for the first time, the gospel message plays an important role in your life. What is this gospel that we speak of? We don't have the sermon recorded before us. Well, If we translate gospel literally, we can get to good news. But let's push that further. What is this good news? It's the greatest news that you've ever heard. It's the news that while we were still sinners against God, wanting nothing to do with him and nothing to do with his ways, Christ died on our behalf. Christ came and lived a perfect life doing what we were called to do but could not. Not only that, but he took the ones that God set apart, his children, his sheep, and he declared them righteous, not for anything that we have done, but solely upon what Christ has done for us. That's a message worth listening to, isn't it? I personally enjoy what Paul says to Titus in another text, and in many of his texts, we do have the gospel message that Paul preached Listen to what Paul tells a fellow minister about God and God's word in Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passion and pleasure, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversy, genealogy, dissension, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, They are self-condemned. Why would Paul feel the need to explain this to a fellow pastor? Why would Paul go into such detail explaining the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to someone who was alongside him, walking along with him in ministry and in ministry work? 
It's because, it's because the gospel message is that important even to us as believers. It's so important that Paul continues preaching even after Eutychus dies and then was raised. It's so important that Paul delivers a 12-hour sermon throughout the night. You see, the miracle here in our text, it serves as a shift in the biblical narrative. We're being told through this account that miracles are no longer necessary to accompany the preaching of God's word. God's word has enough power and authority to stand on its own. The word is miraculous. And the miracle of raising Eutychus is completely overshadowed by God's word being faithfully preached and taught and believed by this church. And did you catch what else is amazing about this? The people actually sit and listen. Eutychus is the only one we have recorded that falls asleep. If anybody else would have, and because Luke is striving to give an accurate account of what happened, we know we would have had it in there. As we mentioned earlier, we know that this was most likely a Christian church. We know that there was mostly believers here. We see that through their worshiping on Sunday in light of the resurrection. We see that in their partaking of the communion meal. Let us not also fail to realize that the gospel is so important not only to the people, but to the minister himself, to Paul. What happened to Paul? Well, Paul was struck by the glory of Jesus Christ. He was physically struck blind by the light and revelation of who Christ was and what he came to do. And Christ told him, you turn from your ways. You turn from here and you go that way no more. You used to persecute the church. You used to destroy the church. You used to destroy my ministers, but you will now become one. You will now go preach and teach and live and die by this very word. This gospel will become your life. Paul loved God so much that he did that through shipwreck, through persecution, through imprisonment, and ultimately through death itself. Now, what Christ did on our behalf is a daily reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness despite our sinful nature. If it's true for the Apostle Paul, is it not that much more true for us today? The last thing that we must address this morning is to answer what is our response. Does the gospel message still have that impact today to the church and to us as Christians and individuals? What do we do in light of what's been said? We're called to do two things. First, we're called to be in awe of the power of the gospel message and how it captivates people and draws them to God. We're called to be responsive and to be strengthened by his word, no matter the cost or the convenience or what's at stake or what we have to gain or what we have to lose. This is the greatest news that could ever be received. This is the greatest message that has ever been told. This is the greatest story we have as human beings. Respond to that. Do we as Christians get excited when we hear God's word preached? Does it stir our hearts to read, study, and share his message? Jesus tells us this as he leaves to go back to his father. 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching everything that I have commanded you? Can we teach what we do not know? Will we do something that we do not love? Something that does not make us excited? Something that does not get us out of bed in the morning? I'll tell you from personal experience, the answer is no. My students at Heritage Christian Academy are very quick to catch on to when I am tired and ill and not in a good mood and not happy. And you know what they learn from that? I probably don't have to pay that close attention today. Because Mr. Suber's not really into what he's saying. But I've seen the opposite take place as well. Those days that I come in passionate and excited and cheerful. And some days all it is is me saying, I will be happy today. God, give me the strength to be happy today. And to share with joy that which he has given me. Do you know what happens those days? They listen. Not only do they listen... They come to realize, you know, this may matter. If, if Mr. Suber can be here in eighth period, just as I can be here in eighth period, and he can teach this after he's done so all day long, then maybe, maybe it is important after all. Maybe this is real. This is the good news from God himself. The Father gave it to us. It must matter for each and every one of us. Not only that, we're called to consider the importance of remembering Christ's work. We do this by being drawn to the communion meal, the breaking of bread, as was taking place in our text. We're told in God's word, as often as we do this, we remember him and proclaim his death until he returns again. He too was die- died and was raised. Eutychus, for a brief moment, reminds us of the shocking truth of this historical event of the death and resurrection of Christ. And that should call us to wonder how. How could the God of the universe take human form and die on our behalf? How could his perfectness be transferred to our sinfulness? How can we be made holy and righteous? How can we be heirs to the kingdom of God? What right do we have? What leg do we have to stand on? And the answer is none but by Christ alone. But in a moment as we take of this meal, we think about these things. While Eutychus had to have the Apostle Paul's help in being raised from the dead, Christ, as he went before the Father after his death and as his sacrifice was accepted before God, he was raised on his own merit and on his own because of who he was and his stance before God. Remember this. Remember the miraculous power of the gospel message being preached. Do not make light of it. It is not some mileage marker that you pass. And you say, now that I'm a Christian, I have no need for you. I don't need to hear this once again. I've accepted that and now I'm along my way. No, it's a daily, constantly, moment by moment reminder that draws us back to God. Praise God for Eutychus and his even small reminder of that truth. I want to close by drawing you back to the story that I started out with. I know we're all excited to hear the conclusion to what went on. You know, the reason that that godly lady 
who knew the Lord for over 50 years still comes to mind constantly for me. It, it's not one of the stories that I will quickly forget. Is this. While she normally slept through my sermons, and she did do that, and in two years, this is the only one I know for a fact that she stayed awake for. Um, that's not it. What it was is I saw a woman who knew the Lord for over 50 years. She heard the gospel message that day, the same message that she had heard time and time and time again, and she got excited. She was excited about the message of God and the good news that that message brings. And so as I leave you and we continue on worshiping God, I want you to be excited about that message. Remember the truth from um, Dr. Luke in the story of the Apostle Paul and the people of Troas and the miraculous Eutychus. Not because him being raised from the dead was miraculous, but, but despite him, people continued to hear, understand, and believe the truth of God's word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what an amazing privilege it is to be able to have your truth proclaimed. What an amazing privilege it is to get to proclaim such truth before the people. So much so that I often go home listening to my own sermon in my head. And I'm amazed how real and how true that is. The gospel is that real. The good news still has an effect or an impact. And then I'm warned every time that I don't leave thinking so. I'm warned every time that I, that I leave with a mediocre heart. And that I leave thinking that was okay. No. Every time your word is proclaimed, that should bring us joy and delight and call us to action. May we all leave changed, believing this word. May we be refreshed by your truth. May we love you as the people in Troas did, as this godly woman did, and as the people have throughout all of, the, all of the centuries that has come before us. Draw us to yourself. Do so now as we continue worshiping you through the taking of this sacrament. Do this in your name, for it's in your name that we pray. Amen.